This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and joining me today is Dr. Denise Spangler, who's the Senior Associate Dean in the College of Education and the B.B. Adderhold Professor in the Department of Mathematics and Science Education from the University of Georgia. Denise, thanks so much for being here. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure. We're going to be getting an advanced look at a chapter that's coming out in the Compendium of Research in Mathematics Education. This has been a large volume that's been in the works for a while now in our field, and we're getting closer and closer to an actual publication date from NCTM. But Denise is here to talk about a chapter that she has written with Vicki Jacobs, and that chapter is called Research on Core Practices in K-12 Mathematics Teaching. But Denise, I always like to start actually back a little bit before. I like to start with people and their graduate school experiences, just to kind of put people on the map and we can know where they came from in their intellectual history. So for you, where did you do your graduate studies and who did you work with there in grad school? So I did my master's degree in mathematics with a concentration in mathematics education at Illinois State University, and I worked with Alba Thompson as my thesis advisor. Oh, great. We have some Illinois State uh, alum here as well at the University of Missouri. It's a great school. Good connections all over the place. (laughs) And that led directly to me doing my doctorate at the University of Georgia because both Alba and then her husband, Pat Thompson, who Mm -hmm. was at the time the graduate coordinator at Illinois State, were both Georgia graduates. So okay. Alba told me I could look anywhere I wanted to for mm-hmm. my doctorate, but I was going to Georgia, so I might as well not yeah. not waste my time. Sure. Um, so at Georgia, I worked with Jeremy Kilpatrick mm-hmm. as my major professor. And a lot of people think that's an odd choice because my area is elementary mathematics teacher education, and no one would associate that with Jeremy. Mm-hmm. And I chose Jeremy as my major professor, not because of the, the content focus. I put other people on my committee like Tom Cooney and Beatrice D'Ambrosio and Lori Hart and Pat Wilson because of the focus on elementary and teacher education. Mm -hmm. But I chose Jeremy because I knew he would make me a better writer and a better thinker. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's great to work with. And he's coming to the end of his career now. Is that right? He just retired. We just did his retirement celebration a few weeks ago, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. So what was the focus of your dissertation? Just a little bit more detail on that. So there's so much in the literature about all of the things that elementary education majors in particular can't do, what they don't know and what they do poorly, what a class of literature I often refer to as teacher bashing. And I was very convicted that I did not want to contribute to that body of literature. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to see what under the best possible circumstances elementary teachers could do. So I took four pre-service elementary teachers and took them out of their regular math methods course and did a field-based math methods course with someone who I knew to be an excellent elementary school mathematics teacher and studied sort of what sense they made of her practice of students' mathematical thinking and how that influenced their teaching practice. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a different kind of study at that time because it, if we take away all of the challenges of finding good field placements, we had a good field placement. Mm-hmm. And so I looked across four pre-service teachers at the different ways that they interpreted what she was doing. And then ultimately I ended up following two of those teachers into their teaching careers a little ways to see mm-hmm. what they did, which has sort of been a hallmark of the rest of my work where I've followed cohorts of teachers over time. Yeah, great. And now the chapter in the compendium is about these core practices, which is kind of a new, newer way of approaching this whole question of how do people become mathematics teachers? What are the skills that they can hone and work on as novices? And how do those then develop Um, as they gain experience teaching. 
And breaking things down into core practices is one way to kind of tackle this very big problem or this big topic of research. So first of all, what are core practices? If people aren't yet familiar with that term or that phrase, what are core practices? And then I want to ask you about the Core Practice Consortium, who's a group that's working on this idea of core practices. So core practices are identifiable things that you can break teaching down into, things that we would expect a novice to be able to learn and learn to do well in the practice of teaching. Some of them span disciplines. So when you think about elementary school teachers who teach everything, a core practice such as leading classroom discussions would span both K-12 and content areas. Mm -hmm. Core practices come in different grain sizes. And so there are people who, for instance, might consider doing a number talk, a core practice, or choral counting, a core, an example mm -hmm. of a core practice in mathematics education. Mm -hmm. Those would be very localized to both the study of mathematics and something like choral counting, actually, to the primary grades. So the term core practices gets used in lots of, of different ways, but one of the big senses of it, so from a research standpoint, it's about breaking teaching down into things that we can identify and talk about across projects. But there's also a sense in which it's a very um, effective response to some policy questions about what is it that we do in teacher education mm -hmm. anyway. Mm -hmm. So there's been a fair amount of pressure from policymakers saying, well, there isn't really anything identifiable about teaching that happens in a college of education. Why don't we just hire a bunch of people who, in our case, for instance, know mathematics? Why don't we just take actuaries or math majors mm -hmm. and turn them into math teachers? So part of it is also a, an attempt on a policy and political front to try to define in better ways what the practice of teaching entails and what teacher education entails in terms of preparing people to be teachers. Yeah, so is this kind of a response to the idea that at a College of Ed in the pre-service teachers coursework they get these grand ideas but they don't get things very tangible to do with students and this is a way of like, no, we can have research-based core practices that we are helping novice teachers to learn and so it's not just an idea or a perspective that we want them to have in mind it's actually tangible things that they can also do with students. Yeah, so I think it's a, a happy medium between the the case that you see in, in some situations where it's let's talk about this very specific thing and make an activity file for doing this and we're going to learn how you play multiplication bingo with kids versus the other extreme of we are going to frame our teacher education program around equity and social justice and everything you do is toward that end but we don't have a lot of specifics about what that looks like. Core practices, I think, sort of get us in the middle of that. So what are these things that teachers need to be able to do that we are relatively sure from the literature has some positive impact on student learning? Mm -hmm. And then what does that actually look like in practice? How do we teach that in teacher education? And how do we, term used loosely, measure it in research on teaching and teacher education? Mm -hmm. So there's this core practice consortium. Tell us a little bit about that because they feature in your chapter that you wrote. So at the time of writing the chapter, the Core Practice Consortium consisted of eight organizations and institutions, things like the Boston Teacher Residency Program, and then institutions such as UCLA, Stanford, Michigan, Washington, Wisconsin, I'm sure I'll leave somebody mm -hmm. out and that mm -hmm. will be problematic, who have come together not necessarily with a goal of coming up with an identical set of core practices, but at least agreeing on some terminology around what do we mean by core practices, leveraging each other's work, trying to come up with some common definitions of things. So one of the things we pull on in our chapter is using their agreed upon definition of leading a classroom discussion, for example. Mm -hmm. So it's one of the, I think, few very deliberate 
multi-institutional efforts we see not at all going in on doing the same research project, but at least trying to frame things in comparable ways. I'm speaking with Denise Spangler about her chapter coming up in the Compendium of Research in Mathematics Education that she wrote with Vicki Jacobs. And before we get into the content of that chapter, I also want to just ask a little bit of a process question uh, for people who might be curious about the compendium and eagerly awaiting it for two years now or whatever it's been. How did that work for you to get selected to be one of the authors? And then the fact that there's a chapter on core practices, were you involved in setting the foci of the chapters? Or did NCTM or Jinfakai have, you know, like chapters that they wanted and then they found people to write those? I was just a little curious about that process. So I have an interesting role in this in that I was also on the editorial panel for the handbook chapter. Mm -hmm. So the editorial panel, which consisted of about eight or ten people um, in mathematics education, we met together face to face for a long weekend several years ago and we looked at the second handbook of research on mathematics teaching and learning and the chapters in that handbook and looked at where has there been a lot of work done where something in that handbook might need to be split into three or four new chapters for example Mm -hmm. where are there things where there really hasn't been a lot of work that needs to get reduced to a different kind of chapter or eliminated altogether and then what's new, like semiotics, for example, where has there been a lot of research that wasn't recognized in that previous handbook. So we generated a list of chapters and we generated a list of potential authors. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that the editorial panel under Jinfa's um, very strong leadership was committed to was getting teams of authors who offered multiple perspectives. Mm -hmm. So we didn't want the sort of classic either single author chapter or chapter authored by somebody and their graduate the students team and their that writes together all the time exactly yeah. we really wanted multiple perspectives um we were also really deliberate in trying to identify authors who were what many people would consider mid-career or early senior career we didn't want it to be all the usual suspects mm-hmm. um, we wanted some other people to have a chance we wanted those people who had the chance to be lead authors to also reach out to possibly some newer scholars in the field as a way of building the community. Hmm. We had some conversations we don't, I think, have in the end a lot of international co-authors, but we did have Mm -hmm. conversations about being very intentional about an international survey of the literature, and even though this is a National Council of Teachers of Mathematics publication, not making it so U.S. or North Mm -hmm. American-centric. Okay. And so for this specific chapter on core practices in the K-12 setting, how did that chapter come about? Was that from that initial discussion that core practices was uh, something to be identified? No, that is the spin that Vicki and I put on it. So originally there were chapters identified on teaching, teachers, and teacher education. Okay. What actually ended up happening was that Vicki and I ended up with a chapter on teaching. And then we had a lot of conversations about how we wanted to portray the act of teaching. Because Mm -hmm. one of the other things that's different from the previous handbook is we had 50 8.5 by 11 double-spaced pages to write this chapter. The previous handbooks, they were more like 100, 125-page chapters. So you are, by definition, having to really shrink the field and narrow. You mean you can't cover all of teaching in 50 pages? Yeah, not even all of (laughs) mathematics teaching. Um, So we knew we had to be very narrow in our choices. And we had the teacher bashing conversation. We Mm -hmm. knew we didn't want to look at teacher characteristics and correlates with student learning and that sort of thing. And so we decided to try to hone in on where we thought 
the greatest impact is, which is in the interaction between students and teachers. Mm -hmm. So that means we're not talking about teacher planning. We're not talking about task selection. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about reflecting on teaching. So we really focused in on those moments where the teacher is in immediate interaction with students Mm -hmm. in the classroom, which led us to core practices. Um, although depending on which set of core practices you look at, those some of them, for example, one of the lists of core practices talks about having a communicating with parents, for example, that isn't really, mm-hmm. it's central to the job of a teacher, but it yeah. is not central to the practice of mathematics teaching. Mm-hmm. So we really honed in there and then went further than that into just two practices. We made a choice to go deep on two rather than go a mile wide and an inch deep, even within core practices. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Um, So the two that you focused on are leading discussions, which you already mentioned, but then also the teacher noticing. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, both of these related to teachers interacting with students, definitely. So let's start with teacher noticing. So teacher noticing you define as teachers focusing attention on and making sense of what students say or do before then actually responding to those students and how like the teacher has interpreted or seen what the student is saying or doing. And then in the chapter, you review some of the ways that researchers have studied teacher noticing. And one of the distinctions that you drew in the chapter that I wanted to ask you about was the distinction between theme-specific noticing versus the more kind of open-ended noticing. So theme-specific noticing, if I understood it correctly, is where the researcher kind of identifies something that they're, they're interested in studying and then they look to see if the teacher notices that thing or to what extent does the teacher notice that thing. Or the researcher says, I'm really interested in topic X in classrooms and then I'm gonna see if the teacher notices X in the same way that I would notice X or what they do with X once they've noticed it. So I was wondering what you see as the benefits and the drawbacks of those two different approaches to teacher noticing. Kind of a researcher-driven theme-specific teacher noticing or kind of an open-ended, I'm just going to study whatever this teacher happens to notice and then let the teacher kind of define what's being noticed. So an advantage of theme-specific noticing is it allows the researcher to link to other bodies of research such as learning trajectories for analysis purposes. So there's a group centered at the University of Kentucky that has been looking at some work that Les Steffi did on number sequences Mm -hmm. and how that's been codified by some other researchers. And they're looking at teachers' specific noticing of that. And so it gives them a very tight, direct, narrow set of things to look for in the classroom to help teachers develop language around that. There's also some differences. If people are looking for something, say they've done an intervention like professional development, and then they want to see what this looks like in the classroom, Mm -hmm. it makes a lot more sense to have a fairly narrowly focused intervention where you have shared these learning trajectories or this particular set of terminology or these particular ways that students tend to think with teachers, and then you're looking at classroom Mm -hmm. implementation. So I see that as an advantage of the theme-specific noticing. Mm -hmm. A disadvantage of it that then is an advantage of the more open approach is you're obviously, by focusing on certain things, you're missing other things. And so by privileging certain things, you're making some assumptions about the place of those things in a teacher's decision-making process. Mm -hmm. So for instance, when you're focused very specifically on mathematics, the teacher may have some much more social equity-oriented decision-making rubrics in his or her head and some decisions about which students' ideas to follow up on, for example, might not be made based on the contribution to a mathematical trajectory, but might be made based on getting this student to feel part of the mathematics community and getting other students to notice and value that student's contribution. Yeah, and I think 
there's a chance of going back toward the thing that you described as teacher bashing. Like if, if the researcher has something very specific in mind, so it's this theme-specific research on noticing, and then if a teacher doesn't notice it or doesn't make decisions based on it in a certain way, then that might slip into the, oh, that teacher is not doing a good job because they didn't do what we were kind of looking for or hoping for, or even if this is all subtext, right? Like a researcher might not actually write it in that way at all, but it might still come across as, wow, these teachers aren't noticing the trajectories or aren't noticing the mathematical development of this idea. And that could start to feel like it's negative against the teacher when really that teacher might be having a lot of other equally important things in their mind that's guiding what they're doing. Right. So that convenience as researchers that we have of having this thing that we can hold on to and say, well, these are stages of something or these are the ways kids typically think about these things, I think does potentially lead to, well, if you didn't do this, it's wrong. If we're only asking about those things, Mm -hmm. then we're not necessarily picking up on what the teacher did notice. We're just picking up on the absence Mm -hmm. of what they noticed, which I agree could could be a problem that leads to the teacher bashing. And if you're doing if you're doing this as somewhat of an evaluation of teacher learning and professional development or teacher education, for instance, it perhaps does then feed back onto you if you're both the researcher and the professional developer that sharing these learning trajectories with teachers didn't really make any difference in what they did in class. So we need to rethink what we're doing in this teacher education Mm -hmm. setting. Sure. And another nice thing about the chapter is that you're able to kind of pull multiple researchers together and kind of compare and contrast and lay them out in some sort of systematic way about the the research that they're doing. And so I was wondering if, if you wanted to talk about some of the methods that have been used to study teacher noticing, because it's kind of invisible, right? Like it's sort of like what's going on in the mind of the teacher as they're observing students or interacting with students. So how have scholars taken up that challenge? That is a very challenging aspect of studying teacher noticing. You kind of have two choices. You either have to rely on teacher self-report or it's highly inferential on the part of the researcher. So we have a chart in the chapter where we talk about sort of the affordances and the limits of three primary ways that teacher noticing gets recorded. Um, One is where the researcher selects some artifacts of practice. So it might be a stimulated video recall interview where you zero in on a particular thing that happened and ask the teacher to reflect back on that or a particular uh, representation that got put on the board and you've got a photograph of that and you ask the teacher or a particular piece of student work or you just have a, a comment that a student made or a particular series of a, of a piece of a discussion that you ask the teacher to reflect on. So that's teacher explains researcher selected artifacts. Mm-hmm. Another option is that the teacher explains self-selected mm-hmm. moments. So mm-hmm. the teacher reflects back on that lesson and says, oh, this was the thing that was important to me. And that can be done immediately after the lesson or the teacher might be given some time to review a video recording and asked to mark some points in the video that they want to talk about. You know, a challenge with that, when I think if somebody did that with me and my own teaching, Mm -hmm. I could probably watch a video of my teaching and rationalize what I did. It isn't necessarily capturing what I was thinking in the moment that I Mm -hmm. did it. Yeah, humans are very good at rationalizing things after the fact, right? Right, (laughs) right. And then the, the third option for collecting data is that the researcher infers from observation that these okay. are things that the teacher noticed. I mean, sometimes it's very obvious you know, mm-hmm. when the teacher says, well, Sam, your solution involves the use of a number line. Would you be willing to share that? So teacher mm-hmm. noticed that student had a different representation. Mm-hmm. But other times it's much more subtle. Yeah. You know, and again, the teacher might have called on Sam not because he had this different representation, but because Sam hasn't said anything today and you know Sam has something that's mathematically promising and you just want Sam's voice Mm -hmm. out in the community for the day. 
One of the things that seems very promising that's been in the field for the last three to five years, I would say, is wearable camera technology that teachers have. So they're yeah. wearing a camera, a video camera that is recording instruction from the teacher's perspective as it happens. And the teacher has some sort of button like a clicker for a, a PowerPoint presentation mm-hmm. that the teacher can hit when in the moment of teaching, the teacher is saying something significant has just happened here. And depending on the nature of the video technology, some of it will archive back 60 seconds or 15 seconds or whatever mm-hmm. up to mm-hmm. the point at which the teacher presses the button. Now, that relies on the teacher being able to manage to focus on what the children are doing in the moment and remember to hit that hit that button. Hmm. But that does seem to provide some promise for, in the moment, mm-hmm. what are teachers noticing to take some of the researcher inference out of it and, and be less taxing on the teacher so you don't have to sit down and watch a 45 or 60-minute video mm-hmm. of yourself to say what was important. It's here in the moment, here's something that seems important. And something that seems important may fizzle in two minutes and Mm -hmm. you may in the end say, well, that that turned out not to be, I thought. Yeah, teacher was noticing something though. And it seems like it might increase the validity of the teacher then explaining what was going through their mind because to actually do the physical act of pushing the button, there was something tangible that you were thinking about and that caused you to press the button. So then later you can be like, oh yeah, this is this is what I was thinking when I pushed the button. Whereas if you're just watching a video straight through and you're seeing things happen, there's not a tangible action to then draw you back to to say, what exactly were you thinking when you pushed that button? So. Right, and the teacher wearable cameras doesn't preclude there being another camera at the back of Capturing the classroom them. from the researcher's perspective, capturing things and the researcher being able to tag mm-hmm. moments. Yeah. Um, but it, it does provide a different window into mm-hmm. teachers in the moment thinking. Yeah. I want to move to the other main topic that you focused on, the main core practice, which was leading discussions. And it's one that I'm personally very interested in. So in one sense, leading discussions is a core practice, as you argue, but it's also made up of smaller grained practices. And you talk about this a little bit in the chapter, but there's engaging students with peers thinking, there's pressing moves, there's scaffolding moves that the teacher can make. Um, And then there's positioning all students as competent. So those are kind of building block practices that make up this bigger practice of leading discussions. When you're writing the chapter, how did you manage those different grain sizes? And then how did you find that other scholars in their research have dealt with the different grain sizes? So I would have to say, other than the initial work of framing the chapter and deciding exactly what we were and were not writing about, this was the most difficult part of mm-hmm. writing yeah. this chapter, because leading discussions does have so many component parts. It's much less clean than noticing, where there are the three things you can, mm-hmm. you know, the three phases of noticing, you know, and then we did come up with some other, like this theme-specific noticing. We found mm-hmm. other ways to classify the literature, but it was mm-hmm. much cleaner mm-hmm. than discussions. And one of the things that made it particularly challenging is that we talk about goals that teachers have and moves that teachers make. Mm-hmm. So if you have a goal of positioning all students as competent, for example, you might make a move that relates to that goal. I can't count how many times in writing, that was a section of the chapter that I took the lead on writing. Mm -hmm. I wrote half a dozen to a dozen pages and thought I had captured it and I Mm -hmm. had it good and solid. And then Vicki would read it and say, well, but what about this? And all of a sudden, all of my categories would Mm -hmm. collapse. And it's in part because in the literature, people conflate moves and goals. They talk about Mm -hmm. them both ways. 
I don't say that as a criticism of other authors. It just is it is the nature of the beast. So scaffolding, for example, can be a goal. You can have a goal of scaffolding student thinking in a discussion. And mm-hmm. maybe the way you do that is by calling on students who have different representations. That's a way of scaffolding student thinking about whatever topic. But scaffolding is also in and of itself a, a move. Mm-hmm. You can scaffold student thinking mm-hmm. toward a larger goal of something else. Mm -hmm. Like if you want to position a reluctant student as competent, you might scaffold that Mm -hmm. student's public explanation of his or her Mm -hmm. thinking. And so it got very difficult to talk Mm. about moves and goals. And so we finally had to make a choice and say, this is how we're defining goals. This is how we're defining moves. And this is how we're going to talk about it in this chapter, even though that's not always how authors Mm -hmm. talked about it. Okay. And some of them are much more um, mathematical than others. For example, like the notion of pressing a student for justification. Mm-hmm. That's got a clear mathematical piece to it. Whereas positioning all students as competent has a much more sociocultural aspect to mm-hmm. it. That Some of that certainly is mathematical because you want to position them as competent mathematically. But that was a real challenge for us. Mm-hmm. It also compounded by the fact that the same move can meet different goals. Oh yeah. <laughs> and the same goal can be met with different moves. Mm-hmm. So there are scholars who study a particular move, such as pressing, for example, and they've identified different ways that teachers press, or the notion of a high press and a low press classroom, for instance. Mm -hmm. Whereas there are other scholars that are looking more generally at classroom discourse and identifying a variety of moves and goals. Mm -hmm. That was a real challenge to wrap our heads around how to structure that part of the chapter and how to to talk about it. And probably until I'm 100, I could think of 100 other ways. Yeah we could have have done that. But that is also sort of one of our challenges to the field in there is that we need Mm -hmm. to, in the way that the Core Practices Consortium has done, it would be nice if we would clean up our language a little bit and agree Mm -hmm. on some things that we're going to talk about and some language that we're going to use because it makes it very hard to go across studies. Yeah, even so you talk about the word discussion, which is, uh, that's a word that I have talked to other scholars about. For me, I don't want to use discussion if it's just individuals sharing out ideas. For me, I kind of want to use discussion to mean we were discussing something, like we were actually batting an idea back and forth or working on it or something Mm -hmm. together. Um, So it's kind of like uh, different than just sharing. Maybe it's like I want it to be discussion. And for you, you got the discussion term from the Core Practices Consortium, so you wanted to be consistent with them. And other people would maybe use discourse or classroom talk or something like that. But how did that work in the chapter to decide on like discussion as well or or how did it work when you were having to read all these studies that are using the language and then putting it together so we go through at some point in the the chapter a variety of different terms that get talked about so there some of them have a very narrow and specific meaning like there's a body of work on argumentation for example mm-hmm. which is really about students collectively constructing an argument with teacher mediation and support There's other literature that's on discussion or discourse. There's a whole chapter in the compendium on discourse, Mm -hmm. but from a a very specific meaning of discourse where you really are analyzing language function, for example. And so we talk a little bit about all these different terms that people use, and then we say, we settled on this one. Here's why we settled on it. Here's what we, we mean by it. And 
it was in part because of this commitment we had to the truly interactive nature of teaching that it isn't just serial sharing. Mm -hmm. Everybody gets a chance to talk kind of thing, but this really is not as um, strictly structured as argumentation where we're building, trying to build something in particular, but we are really all seeking to understand what other people are saying, to map their understanding onto our own, to -hmm. figure out how your explanation and mine are alike and how they are different. Mm -hmm. And where is the four from your explanation and my picture and Mm -hmm. that, that sort of thing. Yeah. Managing people to share out would not be nearly as difficult as facilitating a meaningful discussion as we know. (laughs) It's challenging work. Right. And you look at what work has been done on the five practices of Smith and Stein from a research perspective. One of the things we know is that that making connections among representations part of the end or among solution strategies is Mm -hmm. really difficult. We don't yet Mm -hmm. have a lot of examples of teachers doing that really well. We see examples of the other pieces, Mm -hmm. But it's very challenging, especially mm-hmm. when teachers have all these competing yeah. demands of, you know, especially if they're attending to equity and positioning students as oh, yeah. competent. Sometimes you sacrifice progress on a mathematical idea in order to do this one thing. And sometimes time becomes a factor and you need to go with the thing that most people seem to understand. This representation seems to be making sense. Isn't where I was headed, but let's go with that and mm-hmm. solidify an idea before the bell rings or mm-hmm. so many competing things going on, many of which are invisible to researchers. Right. Um, You mentioned the discourse chapter, and I just wanted to let the listeners know that I am going to try to get a full table of contents of the compendium and uh, share that in the show notes so that if you're curious about some of the other topics that are tackled in this compendium, you'll be able to see that. But right now I'm speaking with Denise Spangler from the University of Georgia. And I was wondering, because you looked at a lot of literature for this chapter, I was wondering if you could help us out by looking into the future and identify what you see as a primary challenge for our field with respect to these core practices? And is there something that future research efforts could do to contribute to the challenge? So I think um, we actually say in the beginning of the chapter that the goal of the core practices consortium is not to agree on a common set of core practices. And I think Vicki would agree with me that we don't necessarily see that as a goal of future research either. But it would be nice to have some agreement on some things about practices, such as which ones do we think span K-12 mathematics? Mm -hmm. Which ones do we think span all elementary school teaching across all subjects? Um, If we Mm -hmm. could agree on some terminology or at least say, when I use this term, I mean this, and it's different from what the Core Practices Consortium talks about because of this. If we could clean up our terminological hygiene in the field, I think it would make it easier to for both people who are reading the literature and people who are trying to build on it to be clear about what it is we're doing. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to see some intervention studies that test the extent to which particular practices in teacher education are effective in developing these core practices. I think it is time for some proof of concept studies where we say, mm-hmm. are these core practices really things that are learnable by novices? What activities in teacher education make them learnable. Mm-hmm. What evidence do we have that when pre-service teachers learn these or in-service teachers learn them, mm-hmm. although most of the work has been with pre-service teachers, but in-service teachers say even learn them in a summer institute, where's the evidence that they get carried out mm-hmm. in the classroom and what does that look like? So I think there's a lot to be done on the research front and the teacher education front. Yeah. So with the research front first, I mean, in the chapter you mention that part of the definition of core practice is that we suspect that it's positively related to student achievement or student learning or to various student outcomes. Um, But what I kind of hear you say now is that one thing the research community could do is 
change those as not only we suspect that it's positively related, but maybe we could actually verify or get some, some empirical evidence that these practices are positively related to student learning. Yes, but that would be incredibly challenging because there is so much that goes on in the classroom that influences yeah. student learning, especially if you're going to use a standardized test or some other mm-hmm. measure. But I think that there are ways of measuring something more broadly defined as student learning, such as student classroom participation, or what is the tendency for students to justify their thinking without prompting, or there are other measures I think we could use mm-hmm. that would suggest student learning, student behavior, student engagement in the norms of the discipline, for example, as opposed to strictly trying to correlate something with Mm -hmm. a standardized test. Right. Because there is a lot that goes on in a classroom. Yeah. Students' (laughs) world and a teacher's world that isn't strictly going to be affected by learning about core practices in a summer institute or in a teacher ed program. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, So you also mentioned teacher education, and that was the last thing I wanted to ask you So there has been a lot of work with prospective teachers and trying to start, you know, focusing on some of these core practices in methods classes, for example. Mm -hmm. In what ways did writing this chapter change or clarify your thoughts for teacher preparation in math education? Are you thinking differently or do you have a, a new vision for what should be happening in teacher education now? I do. So we have the same problem in teacher education that classroom teachers have, which is that to quote unquote cover the curriculum, Mm -hmm. you can't do it. It's a mile wide and an inch deep. You can't possibly get through every content topic at every grade level, every representation you could use. Mm -hmm. And so rethinking what are the big ideas in mathematics teacher education? How would I structure my course? So my courses are now structured around content topics paired with other big ideas such as curriculum or assessment or, you know, students, we have a whole course where content is paired with the idea of students' mathematical thinking. But thinking about do we foreground content or do we foreground core practices? And particularly, I teach in an elementary teacher education program, thinking with my colleagues in science and social studies Mm -hmm. and reading language arts and even the general methods courses. Is there a way that we could harness this work on core practices where we're not all teaching the same thing or we are all teaching the same idea, and I know that I can build on this thing that they've already talked about in social studies, and I can say, this is very similar to what you talked about in social studies about X, Y, Z, to try to get some more more leverage and buy ourselves some more time in teacher education where we go deeper with fewer things, but we have some confidence that those fewer things are actually going to have some payoff in the long term in terms of actual classroom activity by teachers and student learning. Mm I've been speaking with Denise Spangler about her chapter with Vicki Jacobs in the forthcoming Compendium of Research in Mathematics Education, and their chapter was entitled Research on Core Practices in K-12 Mathematics Teaching. What's the latest update on publication kind of timeline for that book? Do you have a sense now? I think I've heard things like end of summer, something like May that. May 2017 is the last thing that I heard. NCTM got 14 books ready for the annual meeting a mm-hmm. few weeks ago in April, and there were three more that were determined they needed to wait until after the annual meeting. So the last I heard was that we were hopeful for the end of May 2017. That would be great. Some good summer reading for all of us. (laughs) And I believe that the intention is to sell it as a bound hard copy, as an electronic copy, and also you can buy individual chapters electronically. Electronically. So grad students who or faculty members who want students to buy particular chapters for a course Mm -hmm. or 
um, classroom teachers or people who want just a particular chapter, I think we'll be able to get just that chapter. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great idea because I think there will be certain chapters that will really speak to certain people or they will really need it for certain purposes. So I think that makes some sense. Before I let you go, I have one final question that I like to ask my guests. This is actually just a little bit of fun and some hypothetical thinking. If you weren't in mathematics education as your career, but you could have some sort of alternative career, and it can be fun and fantastical, or it could be very realistic if you have kind of a different career that you could have imagined yourself doing, what would that have been? My guess is I still would be a teacher of some kind. It might not be (laughs) mathematics. It might not be at the college level. I started my career as an elementary school teacher, and so I would probably be teaching something if it couldn't be math. Mm -hmm. Um, But if I were to go in a completely different direction, the other two things, I was one of those people that from the time I was four was playing school in the basement with Mm -hmm. my stuffed animals and a chalkboard kind of thing. So Mm -hmm. I was always pretty committed to a career in teaching. But the other two I considered were law and journalism. Mm -hmm. Um, My mother still to this day says I would have made a great lawyer because I'm very argumentative about (laughs) (laughs) things, highly verbal. Mm -hmm. Um, So there is something to me about figuring out a case and how to structure an argument that's very mm-hmm. similar to mathematics that does play to my my verbal strengths that I think would have been um, mm-hmm. interesting, but probably wouldn't have had the satisfaction of working with students. Yeah. Um, and then journalism, you know, investigative reporting oh, is okay. also very similar to that, that mm-hmm. you're trying to piece together a story and figure out the right people to interview, to, to get all sides of a story so people can draw conclusions or you can draw conclusions for people. So those are both, um, careers that intrigued me at various points in time, but I've Mm -hmm. always been pretty committed to being a teacher. So if I couldn't teach math, I'd be teaching something else. Yeah. No, I like thinking about, uh, legal arguments sometimes, and then thinking about writing scholarly works, you know, where we are basically trying to provide evidence and put it into a larger argument of what is the case that we're kind of making. So I do think there are some connections there. Mm -hmm. But uh, thanks so much for giving us a little bit of a peek inside this chapter, and we really look forward to it in the next month or so. You're very welcome. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Thank you.